in a way or another, every Palestinian gathering there was a target. Gaza specifically is still bleeding from, from everything that it had been through. Discrimination is only addressed by universities once it's actually challenged by people. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Only 100 meters away from the fence. As you see, we can see the Israeli army snipers. We can see the Israeli army soldiers uh, in the jeeps and trying to target all the protesters that are being very close to the fence by live ammunition, rubber bullets, and the tear gas canisters. Uh, they are using uh, new, updated, and developed weapons. As you see, this is the tear gas by the drone, uh, by the Israeli army. Uh, they throw, the, they are using the drone to throw the tear gas canisters on the protesters. And this is like the 10th time they're using it from the, from, since, the beginning of the day today. Here, here's a live injury uh, just right now from the tear gas canisters that were thrown on the protesters just right now. And as you see, everyone is trying to take this injury uh, to the ambulance to go to the hospital directly. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. That was reporter Hind Khudari reporting from the Gaza Strip for RT News last Friday, March 30th, during the Great March of Return. According to the latest figures, the death toll from that day has now risen to 18, the bloodiest single day for Palestinians since Israel's 2014 assault on Gaza. These include 14 Palestinians killed when Israeli forces opened fire on thousands of people taking part in rallies along the Gaza-Israel boundary, protesting Israel's siege of the territory and demanding the right for refugees to return to lands from which they were expelled by Israel. Approximately 1,400 people were injured, including around 800 hit with live ammunition. On April 2nd, an additional protester died from injuries sustained during the demonstrations. The first killing on March 30th was of Omar Samur, a farmer tending his field at dawn. The same day, two Palestinian resistance fighters were killed in a separate incident in the north of Gaza, away from the protest rallies. The Israeli army posted a statement on Twitter the day after the march, apparently accepting full responsibility for the killings. The army then quickly deleted the admission as more evidence of war crimes by its soldiers came to light, but not before a copy was made by the human rights group Betselem. The now-deleted tweet from the official at IDF spokesperson account stated, quote, Yesterday we saw 30,000 people. We arrived prepared and with precise reinforcements. Nothing was carried out uncontrolled. Everything was accurate and measured. And we know where every bullet landed. Human Rights Watch issued a report on Tuesday concluding that Israel's violence against Palestinians was premeditated, illegal under international law, and ordered at the highest level. And Israel has presented no evidence whatsoever of any credible threat that would justify the violence it used on that day. Joining us to talk about what they saw that day and continue to see in Gaza are two special guests, writers and activists Rifat Alarir and Rawan Yagi. Rawan's op-ed, Gaza Screams for Life, was just published in the New York Times, of all places. And Rifat is a professor and a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Rawan's writing was featured in the anthology Gaza Writes Back, which Rifat co-edited. Rifat and Rawan, it's so good to have you both with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you for having us. 
so, Rifat, let's start with you. Um, you were there on Friday, March 30th, uh, at the Great March of Return, as thousands of Palestinians marched near the eastern boundary with Israel to demand their right of return and an end to the decade-long Israeli siege. Uh, you took lots of photos and videos that day and posted many of them on your Twitter account, at This Is Gaza. Uh, tell us about that day, what it felt like, what it looked like at the march. Um, how did that day begin? Uh, the, the day began actually after uh, a couple of months or probably close to a month of uh, uh, preparations where people, activists, were calling for a, a peaceful march in Gaza. At the beginning, it wasn't clear how things will uh, will end up. But uh, on Friday, as I took a taxi uh, with my wife and my kids uh, and headed to the eastern parts of Gaza City itself, uh, near where my family uh, lives, near where I used to live before Israel destroyed our house. Uh, and there were, I, w I, I would say, actually, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of people. Like, the whole area wa was crowded. There were people gathering, families, kids, uh, elderly men, elderly women, every... Uh, uh, like it seemed like everyone in Gaza City was heading towards the the, the borders in anticipation of what's going to uh, to, to happen. The, the whole day uh, started uh, with uh, people gathering, and then there was the Friday prayer, and more and more people kept coming throughout the whole uh, the whole day. It was so emotional. It was so uh, emotional in the sense that. Uh, many people were never this close to their own villages and, and towns that Israel destroyed and depopulated decades ago. Uh, I saw uh, elderly women almost uh, uh, almost weeping and, 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 and shedding tears because they were so happy, so uh, in, a, in a sense that they thought that they were uh, returning back to their to their homes, that they were finally going to go back to uh, the, the homes they left behind because Israel, uh, Israeli uh, militias and the Zionist gangs kicked them out by, by force. And only to be met with bullets, only to be met, met with, uh, with drones throwing uh, tear gas uh, canisters. The day, in, in my opinion, was unprecedented in the sense that there were uh, Palestinians belonging to all uh, uh, political factions. Uh, this was not a political uh, march. It was uh, a popular march. It, uh, Hamas did not lead this. Uh, but uh, naturally, uh, Hamas, uh, Fatah, Islamic Jihad, and, and uh, leftist uh, uh, factions were always were all uh, all there. Uh, people who didn't belong to any uh, political party were also there because, uh, again, like you said. Uh, everyone was calling for an end to this occupation, an end to this uh, medieval siege imposed uh, uh, on Gazans here in Palestine, hoping for a better future, hoping for, hoping for uh, a better life. Rafat, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what it was like um, there at the march, the, the mood, the maybe some of the signs that people were holding, some of the conversations that you had with people, uh, and, and and how long did it take uh, until Israeli snipers started to shoot into the crowd? Uh, the, the major theme there was a festival. Like, again, people, many people were, brought their, uh, uh, their food, brought, uh, the kids brought their, their toys, they were dressed, uh, they tried to look their best, everyone. Uh, the mood was uh, festival, was cheerful. 
uh, it was like a celebration. It was like Palestine is free and people are finally return, returning back. This was the, the major theme, the major mood. And most of the slogans were focusing on the right of return, Palestinians, because uh, the majority of Palestinians living in Gaza Strip are, are refugees. They have their own land. Even uh, I'm, I'm not a refugee myself, but my grandparents on both parts of my, 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 my parents own land beyond this uh, uh, Israeli uh, border imposed around, around Gaza, because this is only part of Gaza. There's something called Greater Gaza. So uh, my, my father could point to, to areas where my grandparents would uh, plow and plant and, uh, and, and live for, for years before Israel occupied uh, Palestine and, and Gaza Strip. So this was the major, the major theme. Uh, there was hope, there was uh, festivity, like there were festivities, there was some kind of celebration, unprecedented because everyone was participating. Now, uh, uh, the, the actual killing started, like you said in the introduction, it started at, the, at dawn. There was a farmer in Hanunis who was uh, shot and killed, uh, was killed by, by, by Israel. And in, uh, in the Gaza City uh, uh, point of gathering near the border, uh, even before the Friday prayer where people started gathering uh, by hundreds and thousands, that we, we would always, we would every now and then hear the ambulance uh, coming and uh, taking injured people, whether by live rounds or by uh, 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 tear gas. So, I, I can't tell exactly when the shooting uh, uh, started in, in the Gaza city, but it started as early as uh, people started uh, uh, together, to and even before people threw uh, threw stones or whatever they had at the uh, Israeli snipers uh, shooting at Palestinians. That's the voice of Rifat Alarir speaking to us from Gaza, uh, Rifat. When Israel started shooting into the crowd, when the, the high-tech drones started uh, dropping tear gas on, on these massive crowds of people, how did the mood shift? What, what did you see? I, after the Friday prayer, I ventured closer and closer with uh, some friends, and I realized that there were a lot more people uh, there than we were at, uh, at the back because uh, the whole area was crowded. Like I said, one friend estimated uh, over one, uh, like 100,000, 150,000 uh, uh, people uh, only in Gaza Strip, in, in Gaza City itself. So uh, uh, we couldn't make calls, and I tweeted about this, we couldn't make calls. I, I, I wasn't sure whether this is because there were so many people crowding the area or because Israel did something. I'm not sure, I can't tell. Uh, so we were cut off. We didn't have internet connection. We couldn't call friends or family. We couldn't listen to the news. So many people there were not aware of the fact that Israel was uh, shooting and sniping uh, Palestinian protesters. And this is uh, something that many people uh, didn't realize. Even when I, I came close, like 300 meters away from the, the borders, and I was there and I saw two or three people uh, shot. Uh, many people suffered the uh, uh, like inhalation problems because of the tear gas, and I didn't realize that many people were shot. It was later on when I went back to upload the the, the photos and the videos I I took. 
I heard in the news that at least seven people were, were killed. I was uh, personally uh, stunned because the guys were far away, no stone. And I tweeted also about this. I said not even David's uh, sling could get these stones over the, the, the border. So uh, Israel, on purpose, and we've seen this in their tweets, in their uh, Facebook, the Israeli officials were tweeting about this and were uh, stating that openly that they will shoot at any uh, uh, Palestinian that, uh, that approaches. And in a way or another, every Palestinian gathering there was, uh, was, a, tar was a target. So uh, if Israel meant to uh, send people away because, by shooting them, as a matter of fact, people kept coming and coming and coming. And, and this is a very strong message uh, that people were sending, that even if you're killing us, even if you're shooting us, we're not go going to, 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 to retreat, we're not going back, we're not going to go down, we're not going to submit, we're not going to, uh, to kneel. Israel has been uh, brutalizing Palestinians for seven decades, and it's not going uh, to be that much if, uh, you know, Israel, uh, uh, yeah, like... Uh, and, and we don't, I mean, we don't expect Israel to stop shooting at uh, any time soon unless there is a lot of, uh, of pressure. So the shooting uh, did not prevent people from coming to where uh, the, to the gathering, did not uh, send people, it did not terrorize or, or frighten people because we had a message of, uh, uh, of our rights. We have our rights to, to call for the struggle. The, the march itself was peaceful, was nonviolent. And people were insisting on uh, on this, raising their voices that we will remain here. Uh, we don't expect, of course, Israel to open the borders and to tell people to go back. Israel has to be forced to do uh, to do this. But the message was that Palestinians will keep struggling for their rights. We'll, we will keep resisting the Israeli occupation by all means available. I want to bring Rowan Yagi into this. Rowan, you weren't at the march last Friday, but you did attend a rally on Sunday as part of the planned six weeks of protests and actions um, by people in Gaza up until Nakba Day, May 15th, uh, which commemorates 70 years now of expulsion, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid. Uh, Rowan, you actually managed to get an op-ed published in the, New York, in the New York Times, which has been calling Israel's premeditated murder of Palestinians last Friday as merely, quote, clashes. Uh, we can spend an entire broadcast talking about the ways in which the Times and other uh, mainstream media outlets continue to toe Israel's line and deliberately obscure Israel's crimes against humanity. But I want you to talk about what you saw on Sunday, what that protest looked like, and, and what the mood was three days after uh, all of these people had been killed during the Great March of Return. Um, so yeah, I went... Um to the march on uh, Sunday. Uh, there were a few hundred people uh, there. Uh, it was actually surprising to see that many people, given I, I went almost at midday, uh, because so it was really hot. Um, and the crowd was initially um, quiet. It was very silent until a few women uh, started singing uh, the uh, Abu Arab, Abu Arab um, song, uh, Raja. Um, it was really, um, it, it was a really nice spirit, um, a spirit of, uh, togetherness, uh, a spirit of, of hope, um, and 
people just um, stood there, um, sometimes singing, sometimes chanting, and they didn't uh, seem to 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 want to um, provoke anything. Uh, they could see all of the snipers um, hiding behind the the sand barriers uh, just across from the border. They were about um, 200 meters away from the fence, and I think the fence was about 300. Uh, was about 100 meters from the sand barriers of the soldier, the snipers. Uh, uh, like I said in the article, uh, people didn't uh, go closer than that to the fence. Uh, there were people um, um, asking them not to. Uh, and didn't seem to me like people wanted to, to go closer because uh, it just didn't seem like an appealing idea to anyone. Um, there were a few um, uh, shots of live ammunition and that was terrifying because all of these people were standing in, in daylight in perfect view of the snipers. Uh, any of them could have been taken down um, at any moment. Um, and it was, it, I was amazed by these people's uh, courage uh, to stand there. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was scary as well because, because you knew that there, there was, there was live ammunition um, at play and there was um, there there wasn't any uh, fear from from the sniper's side to use that that force. Um, uh, so yeah, it was there was a little bit of tension, but the people who were standing there um, were also full of full of uh, life. Um, but the more the more striking thing was that there were people who had been injured on Friday, um, protesting again. There were people who had hand injuries. Uh, some of the people playing football had had um, their hands wrapped. You could actually see the blood on the wrap, uh, and. Um, I remember asking them, "You have the whole the whole of Gaza Strip to play football. Why? What are you doing here?" Um, and they said, "Because this is uh, a way to protest as well. We want to play football on the border. Um, uh, it's a nice open space to play here as well. Why not play here? Um, because they do. They they have the right to play." play anywhere they want in Gaza <laughs> and uh, they shouldn't be afraid of of bullets of of the threat of being killed just for playing or just for protesting or just for demanding um, whether the right of return or a basic right of of 
living, really. Um, um, so yeah, that was, I, I thought that people who had been injured on Friday coming back to the protests or the march to be the most striking thing. And it just made sense looking at the whole picture of Gaza because Gaza has been injured or has been wronged over and over again over the past, not just ten, not just decade, but over the past seven decades since since the Nakba. Um, Gaza and all of Palestine have been wronged and have been injured, but Gaza specifically is is still bleeding from from everything that that it that it had been through. And it's still out there, so um, calling for rights that others choose to uh, overlook, that the world chooses to overlook. Um, the right of return, the right for life, the right for, for um, safety, the right for playing football, for protest, for uh, free speech for everything, really. So, yeah. Erlan Yagi, uh, you wrote in your op-ed, I left the protest thinking of the rest of Gaza, shell-shocked for years, its border borders closed and its United Nations-funded infrastructure in decay. I thought of the kids in my neighborhood who play football on what used to be the ground floor of a tall residential building with bare concrete columns and poking iron rods as their only audience. And I thought, once again, Gaza the injured has come out to protest and to scream for life. Rowan, talk about your neighborhood in Gaza a bit. Um, and, and you know, you mentioned this, but, but maybe talk a little bit more about why these protests, why the next six weeks um, are so important to your family, friends, and neighbors? Um, so I live in Al Nasser area, which um, is uh, relatively central. But I live near um, the what is called the Italian complex. Um, and that used to have a tall residential building just made of uh, residential apartments. Um, that that uh, that building was uh, destroyed by uh, Israeli um, airstrikes uh, in 2014, and um, nothing stands of it at the moment, um, except, like I said. Um, iron rods and broken um, concrete and broken concrete um, and the result of that uh, destruction was that tens of families lost their 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 homes because ten, a lot of people lived there um, and you can imagine the um, the scene of a of a of an attack like that. As that and that was just one attack um, of the many of the numerous that were that were conducted in two thousand and fourteen. 
you can imagine um, the force that was needed to bring a building like that down. Um, I can't remember exactly how many floors it was, but um, it was maybe 12 to 15 floors. I'm not sure. But yes, yeah, it was relatively tall. Um, and the force that was um, used to take it down was immense. Just like the force that was used to take down other tall buildings and other not very tall buildings uh, around Gaza. Um, so yeah, the, the the empty space and the the remnants of destruction that um, the place has are like a like a scar in in the neighborhood, and that's that's one place where an attack happened. You can imagine the hundreds of thousands of attacks that have been going over the last, not just 10 years. I've, I've, I've been seeing airstrikes, I've been experiencing airstrikes my whole life. Uh, and Derfat probably is, has been experiencing his whole life as well. Um, so each of these is like a, is like a scar in each neighborhood. Um, so yeah, this is what you, what you wake up to, what you see when you're going to, to your work or what you see when you're going to school or what you see when you're playing football, like the kids that play football in, in what, in the, in the empty space that replaces it. Um, what, what, it, what the march means for... Uh, I can't remember what your other question was. Yeah, just the, the, the why are these marches and, and the next six weeks of protests and direct actions, why are they so important um, to, to people in your neighborhood? Um, like I said before, it's um, because people um, are calling for, for their right, the right of return above all, um, but also because they are being met with such brutal force, the right to to speak um, to speak freely, to be able to to, to protest freely, um, and to be able to live in a place like Gaza. That's that's um, that is a thing that people are demanding. They're demand demanding to to be respected as human beings. Um, so yes, that's, that is the basic significance of it, but also the fact that everyone can go to these pro protests, whether women or men, uh, whether people who are politically involved or not is another significance of it. It's, um, it's bringing people together um, and it's showing people that really at the end of the day, uh, we are all what we have. Arafat, uh, your thoughts on, on this past week in Gaza and, and the next uh, six weeks of protests? Uh, like I said, this is unprecedented in many 
anyways, because Ramanjan has just said that it's bringing people together, it's uniting people, it's reviving, uh, sparking the hope that uh, people have. We know that sooner or later Israel will will be defeated, but every now and then we need something to boost uh, the morale, and this uh, nothing does this like Palestinians of all the political spectrum of all ages of all social ranks gathering together uh, sitting next uh, to each other uh, talking about one thing about return about the possibility of this uh, 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 march changing something maybe like I said it might not change things not because uh, uh, Palestinians are losers, but because Israel is brutal, Israel is backed by America, by by the European Union, by even the Arab regimes nowadays. And Israel is never has never been this uh, powerful and and this uh, this arrogant. But again, uh, this will help uh, revive the the spark, the hope that Rawan uh, has just uh, mentioned that Palestinians have the right to return, have the uh, uh, the the had to have everything uh, to cling to hope their future the future generations so this is this is significant and again it exposes Israel as a brutal colonial uh, colonial power that no no matter what Palestinians do Israel will kill will kill them no matter what matter what what resistance uh, method of resistance we will use Israel will still brutalize us demonize us. Uh, uh, Israel will be racist, Israel will be Israel. And this is very clear, not even today. In the West Bank, we have, we see almost on, on, on weekly basis the uh, peaceful, nonviolent protests uh, in Berlin and Berlin. And we see how uh, Israel uh, brutalizes and kills and shoots the, the, the protesters. We see how Israel bans BDS activists who call for you know uh, uh, the, the the human, the equal rights of Palestinians and the right to return and return and these things. So these Palestinians were unarmed, were peacefully protesting, and it's uh, it's special because uh, uh, because the, even the people who died, Israel tried to demonize this march because of Hamas. But Israel, yes, Israel hates Hamas, but Israel hates Palestinians. Like I said. If Palestinians shoot rockets, fire rockets, or carry guns, Israel will destroy them and will uh, criminalize and uh, demonize them. If Palestinians carry stones and uh, uh, Molotov cocktails, if Palestinians uh, fly kites, if Palestinians breathe, Israel will hate them and Israel will want to uh, them to be uh, uh, submitting and kneeling and abjectly uh, kneeling. So. The fact that some of those killed by Israel uh, turned out to be uh, Hamas militants, uh, uh, it doesn't mean that this is a military uh, march. It doesn't mean that Hamas is behind this. It means something, something else. It means that those people who belong to these uh, military wings, those people who have guns, who are trained to shoot and maybe to snipe, chose to leave their guns behind, to be among their uh, families and friends, to be among the unarmed peaceful protesters, to be out there, again, unarmed. And when these people choose this, it means something important is changing in 
in the Palestinian in the Palestinian community. I'm, I'm not saying this to demonize the, the armed Palestinian resistance. The armed Palestinian resistance is legitimate. It's moral. It's something Palestinians have to do sometimes to defend their very existence. But it's very significant to look at those uh, uh, people who are well-trained, militarily speaking. And again, we see them unarmed participating and being shot uh, uh, by Israel. It means, again, they have chosen this path. They're trying to see what other scenarios, what other means of resistance they can, they can be involved, involved in. Uh, this is not uh, uh, a military march. We will keep saying this. Palestinians insist on this. And uh, uh, there were many people posted videos of, uh, uh, of Israeli soldiers on the borders. If Palestinians, if some, if some of these militants wanted to shoot these Israeli soldiers, they were sitting ducks, but they chose not to do so. Because, again, I have to repeat this so many times, because this is a nonviolent, peaceful uh, uh, march. Uh, and again, not not for food, not for because we're not asking for food, we're not asking for uh, for aid, we're asking for our freedom. The end of the Israeli occupation. Uh, it might sound far-fetched, but uh, it sounded far-fetched for semi, uh, the uh, South uh, African, uh, you know, the end of apartheid in South Africa sounded far-fetched for so many people. But again, we we don't know what uh, what comes. We will keep struggling. We will keep fighting, and people are coming together more than ever before. And uh, uh, like, like I said, they're trying to, to see if this nonviolent, uh, 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 nonviolent protest this time brings something new, or if the world is going also to, to uh, overlook the Palestinian blood, uh, be silent, and actually give Israel the, the, the green line, like we have said. So this is significant. This is unprecedented. Not in the sense that, Palest that uh, unarmed, that uh, peaceful uh, protests are new to Palestinian struggle. No, Palestinians have been engaged in, in this kind of struggle for decades, for seven decades, even before the Israeli, uh, the establishment of, of Israel. But this time, everyone is coming out. Everyone is coming out together, Fatah and Hamas and Islamic Jihad and the uh, Popular Front, everybody is uh, demanding the right of return. And this is very significant. Well, we're going to have to leave it right there. That's the voice of Rifat Alarir, and also uh, we heard from Rawan Yagi. They're both in Gaza. They're both writers and scholars. Um, and we thank you both so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast and look forward to your contributions. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always thank good you. to be with you.
I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We'll be talking about a new academic boycott campaign being launched by scholars and academics on U.S. campuses who are calling for universities to abolish the study abroad in Israel programs. According to the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, or U.S. ACBI, these programs, quote, are on their face discriminatory due to Israeli restrictions on freedom of movement based on national origin, religion, and ethnic identity, not to mention recent laws passed that would ban entry to faculty or students based on constitutionally protected political opinions and therefore in violation of university anti-discrimination and equal opportunity policies. Joining us to talk about this campaign is David Lloyd, professor of English at UC Riverside and a member of the organizing collective of U.S. ACBI, the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. David, it's so good to have you back with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you, Nora. It's great to be back on. So if you could, it would be great to have you lay out uh, the breadth of these study abroad on, in Israel programs. How many campuses, you know, are taking part? What kind of a program is this, really? Um, Nora, we actually don't know the exact numbers now. We're doing our research into this. The difficulty of establishing that is that in general, some universities, particularly larger universities, will run their own um, study abroad programs. Others will collaborate with study abroad programs being run either by you know, outside agencies or by um, other universities which allow uh, students from their sister universities to participate. So it's a bit unclear, A, how many study abroad programs there are, and secondly, how many students would participate in them from all of the universities around the United States. Um, we are aware, for example, that NYU has a program and there is an ongoing campaign to have that uh, program being be investigated. Um, on the grounds of probable discrimination um, against certain students at NYU. Um, you've mentioned some of the grounds, and we could go further on that if you wish. Yeah, well, let's talk about the inherent problems in the study abroad in Israel scheme. Uh, as, as you laid out, as U.S. ACBI laid out, they are discriminatory because, of course, it would be nearly impossible for a Palestinian-American student to participate because of Israel's racist entry policies. Uh, lay this out a bit and how Israel's policies violate these basic university uh, non-discrimination rules in these programs. Well, let me start by citing no less an authority than the U.S. State Department. <laughs> At this point, I want your listeners to listen up because it seems to me very probable that this sentence will be removed from the U.S. State Department's page of adv travel advisories to travelers who would be going to Israel as soon as our um, as soon as our, our campaign launches, because uh, it's very probable that as soon as it's seen that the information I'm about to give is a very official statement of Israel's uh, discriminatory entry policies, it will be removed. So listen up. <laughs> what the U.S. State Department page um which is on its site where there are advisories to travelers going to any part of the world. So for any country that might cause problems for U.S. travelers of any kind, whether it's uh, being in a state of civil war or whether it's regular discrimination or whether it's a history of denying visas to U.S. citizens or anything like that, um, the U.S. State Department will post a travel advisory. 
Now, what it openly observes on the sites relating to Israel is the following. U.S. citizens whom Israeli authorities suspect of being Arab, Middle Eastern, or of Muslim origin may face additional, often time-consuming, and probing questioning by immigration and border authorities, or may even be denied entry into Israel, the West Bank, or Gaza. Now, it's well known by anybody who is of Palestinian uh, descent, for example, or who has an Arab name, or who is noticeably Muslim, or even not even noticeably Muslim, that it is very likely that they will at the very least be held up and questioned on entry into Israel, whether they go through Ben Gurion uh, Airport in or near Tel Aviv, or whether they go through on the eastern uh, frontier of Palestine, which Israel claims is its own border right now, uh, and pass through the Allenby Gate, that they will be held up and questioned at the very least. Um, similarly, anybody who's engaged in political work, um, uh, <clears throat> for example, an SJP member, or indeed a member of US ACPI, the US campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, will be held up and interrogated at the border. Indeed, I had that experience myself passing into Israel a few years ago. And my group, all of whom belonged to both U.S. and Canadian um, uh, organizations that were fighting for Palestinian rights, we were all held up and interrogated. Um, at that point, we were allowed entry, but other people were not. Other people, including Palestinians heading to an, the same academic conference in Ramallah, were actually denied entry. In other words, this is a really arbitrary set of policies. Some people may be let in, some people may be let in after intrusive questioning, some people may be denied entry, um, as happened indeed to a graduate student of mine who was trying to do research on the Palestinian youth movement a couple of years ago. In other words, it's a discriminatory policy that works in very arbitrary ways. And what that would mean is that any student who falls into any of these categories, that is uh, religion, national origin, ethnicity, um, and in, in addition to those, any student who may have been involved in perfectly constitutionally protected organizing work on behalf of Palestinian rights might also be denied entry on the basis of their belonging, say, to SJP or to JVP. So it's our belief that such running such programs and giving university funding or even uh, moral sanction to such programs violates the non-discrimination and equal opportunity clauses that most uh, U.S. universities, if not all, uh, honor as a fundamental principle of access to education. And that's why we're, we're targeting um, these uh, study abroad programs in Israel and um, hoping indeed that people will join us in this boycott. And again, SJP is Students for Justice in Palestine. JVP is Jewish Voice for Peace. And those are just two of about 50 uh, organizations that Israel uh, recently deemed um, uh, prohibited from entering because of their uh, activity and organizing on behalf of Palestinian rights. 
David, if these entry policies that you're laying out are overtly discriminatory, how have U.S. universities been able to keep their support of these study abroad programs? Certainly there have been efforts to challenge the programs because of these issues before, but um, how, do you, how do they contend uh, with this uh, double standard um, policy at universities? Well, it's it's an interesting question, actually. Um, generally speaking, universities are, as you probably know, fundamentally quite racist institutions in all kinds of ways. Um, I don't think that's a secret. Um, they tend to be discriminatory um, just by their very constitution. And it's really only historically when universities have been challenged, whether it's on the question of admissions to uh, students of color or whether it's on on the question of facilities for transgender students or whatever it may be, discrimination is only addressed by universities once it's actually challenged by people. And to date, there have been occasional attempts to challenge these programs, but not yet, as far as we're aware, a national campaign of the kind we're trying to organize that will draw attention to this. And uh, I want to say, of course, that it's not only study abroad programs through which uh, the universities support uh, Israeli efforts to paint the state as an open liberal democracy. Um, It's also through a whole uh, gamut of institutional collaborations with Israeli academic uh, academic institutions that include, for example, um, scientific collaborations on research, uh, holding of conferences in collaboration with um, Israeli academics and indeed sometimes with Israeli defense forces. Um, and all, all these are instances of the university collaboration with Israel that hold up, and this is really the most important point, hold up Israel as an example of democracy when in fact uh, Israel is, as has been well established, an apartheid state that systematically discriminates against its Palestinian citizens, whether they are Muslim or Christian, um, and indeed discriminates also against other uh, groups in the state who are immigrant or refugee. So universities have, have a long history of such collaborations and such collaboration with the Zionist effort to appear uh, like a modern liberal state. And above all, we are launching this campaign in the year of the 70th anniversary of the Nakba, the the Palestinian catastrophe, when something like three quarters of a million Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from Israel. Because whereas, you know, we are protesting the fact that some of our students may um, completely arbitrarily be discriminated against uh, if they make the attempt to join study abroad programs, the real scandal is not that. The real scandal is that the descendants uh, of 750,000 Palestinians, Palestinians who were expelled um, with the with the Nakba, and many of whom have subsequently been expelled again from the West Bank or Gaza, are are now unable to return themselves to what are effectively their homes. So you know, that Israel racially profiles uh, American students or faculty who seek to enter is one thing, but the fact that they are in fact maintaining a, um, 
a ban on the return of Palestinians to their historic homes is really the issue that we're trying to draw attention to. That's the voice of David Lloyd. He's a member of U.S. ACBI, the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. He's also a professor at UC Riverside in Southern California. Uh, David, let's talk about this campaign. What is uh, what is U.S. ACBI calling for? How are campaigners organizing around this? Well, in the first place, what we are asking for people to do um, is to join us in pledging to boycott all such programs. People can go to our site, which is www.usacbi.org and find a a button on which they can um, sign up to pledge to boycott the programs. In the further reach of the campaign, what we want to do is bring pressure to bear on universities to uh, end or suspend these campaigns until uh, Israel complies with international law and human rights norms. And uh, as as your listeners probably know, this involves ending the occupation uh, of the West Bank and the siege of Gaza. It involves honoring the right of refugees to return, to which this campaign is most apposite, and honoring the uh, <coughs> rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel um, to have equal rights with uh, Jewish citizens of Israel. So those three uh, demands of the BDS movement are the ones that we would expect Israel to honor if, in fact, we are to participate again in study abroad there. David, we know the the, the reach and the influence uh, that major Israel lobby groups have on U.S. campuses. I think you mentioned that before. How are academics and members of this campaign um, bracing or preparing for the blowback that will come because you're challenging the study abroad program? Well, inevitably, as as in the case of every effort to hold Israel accountable for its violation of international law and human rights, um, we expect them to conduct a campaign of lawfare uh, against us. Um, it's important to note that several of the people most closely involved with launching this campaign have already been targets of lawsuits, of defamation, and and of attempted uh, attempts at sanction. Uh, for their activity in this respect and remain completely undaunted because we know that that it is our constitutionally protected right to engage in boycott and other forms of protest against injustice. And these lawfare campaigns that have been launched against, for example, American Studies Association or efforts to close down courses, which I I myself was the object of for uh, a while ago at at UC Riverside where I teach, um, these efforts always fail because they're found to be without merit and in many cases to be frivolous. So we are expecting uh, huge pressure in the form of of legal efforts to prevent this from happening. We're also expecting, of course, a huge uh, propaganda campaign and further efforts by Israeli institutions even to step up um, the study abroad programs that they already host. So all of this is is completely predictable, I think, at this point for anybody who has any experience of trying to work for Palestinian human rights. On the other hand, we also know that um, 
What has changed in the years since U.S. ACTBI was founded, which um, you may know was in in um, 2009, just in the wake of the Israeli assault on Gaza, the Castellet operation. In in the nearly 10 years now since U.S. ACTBI was founded and other organizations also became more active in, in fighting for Palestinian human rights, the, the landscape has really changed. The landscape of civil society, which used to be almost entirely silent uh, on the question of Palestine, now through campaigns of this nature, whether organizing in academic associations or raising the question of divestment from uh, companies that do business that support the settlements on the West Bank, or whether it's the work of church organizations or Jewish Voice for Peace, etc., etc., targeting uh, Israeli injustices, the question of Palestine is now very high on people's agenda and much more information is circulating a, about um, Israeli discrimination. One of the things about the targeting the study abroad programs, as I've argued in the past, is that it brings attention not only to the apartheid structure of the occupation itself and people ranging from Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa to former President Jimmy Carter have been quite willing to say that the the regime that, that is in place in the occupied West Bank is tantamount to apartheid. What is less often admitted is that Israel itself, with something like 50 laws that openly discriminate against the Palestinian citizenry of Israel, is itself an apartheid state. And by drawing attention to the fact that Israel discriminates at its borders against certain categories to whom many of our students belong, is in a sense, advancing the work of BDS by taking away, if you like, the screen behind which Israel hides its non-democratic practices, that screen which I've mentioned already, by which it claims to be a liberal democracy and indeed the only liberal democracy in the Middle East. So I think that the, the importance of this campaign is that we're moving from asking for divestment from companies that do business on the occupied West Bank to actually raising the question of what Israel itself is as a state. David, finally, uh, and, and you mentioned this before, but if you could uh, give the information again about this campaign, how students, members of faculty, families of students or faculty can plug into this campaign and learn more about how people are mobilizing. Well, the very first thing that people can do is go to our site, um, that's www.usacbi.org, www.usacbi.org, and pledge to boycott all such uh, programs of study abroad in Israel until it complies with the demands of the, the BDS movement. Secondly, hopefully people will do more than that. Hopefully, they will begin to inquire of their administrations whether they are running or cooperating with study abroad programs in Israel, demand them to explain why they are running programs which violate their own anti-discrimination and equally, equal opportunity uh, policies, and thirdly, demand that they shut down those programs until such times as the um, Israel complies with these uh, basic demands for human rights for Palestine. 
Um, I think those are those are kind of the minimal ways um, in which people can participate. Hopefully, they they will also get involved in other campaigns like divestment campaigns as well. And you know, let me just note that this this does not only affect students. This affects students, of course, it, but it also affects faculty. Um, people who have been denied entry to Palestine on the basis of their identity or of their politics. Ironically, it also has affected um, university administrators. Um, my favorite example is that of Donna Shalala, who was under, under President Clinton, U.S. Secretary for Health and Human Services. And she went on a delegation when she was president of the University of Miami back in 2010. And... Um, she was detained at Ben-Gurion Airport on her way out because she got separated from the group of university presidents with whom she'd gone to investigate ways in which they could collaborate with Israeli academic institutions. And she was apparently subjected to humiliating personal questions about which she refused to speak on her return. So we're talking, in other words, about a system of arbitrary discrimination which can target someone who's a university president simply because her um, her name is actually of Lebanese uh, origin. So universities ought to be attending to programs like this which are in direct violation of their anti-discrimination laws. And we hope that people at all levels of the university will begin to ask questions, not just students, but faculty and administration as well. David Lloyd, you are a professor of English at the University of California at Riverside. Thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada. Thank you, Nora. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features, and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. 